This is the Human Action Podcast with your hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. As you can see, I'm joined by Mr. Alex Pollock, not my usual co-host, Dr. Bob Murphy, who is continuing uh, to unpack in Florida this week. So those of you who are not familiar with Mr. Pollock and his work, uh, well, I'm happy to say he is now a senior fellow at the Mises Institute. But prior to that, he had a long career uh, both in banking as the president of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago, which is pertinent to our topic today, but also at AEI and at R Street. And he's given a couple of talks at the Mises Institute just about a year ago, uh, for example, on Hazlitt Hayek and how the Fed made itself into the world's biggest savings and loans. So good morning, Alex. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, and it's great to be with you. Well, so the topic is housing, as people might suspect, but there's a lot going on. If we look at Bloomberg, we see that mortgage applications have plummeted. Housing prices, even in the frothier markets, are down 8 maybe 10% across the board. So clearly, if the Fed's goal by raising rates, or at least targeting higher rates, was to... Um, kill the housing market, uh, they're succeeding. So I guess give us your top line thoughts on what's going on in housing at the moment. What's going on in housing is now we, we had a bubble, a central bank induced bubble in housing prices, which was international, by the way. There were something like 20 countries in the world who had runaway inflation in house prices. Uh, and that bubble is now deflating uh, as it had to. Uh, when interest rates became normalized. So the, the bubble was created by a suppression uh, of all kinds of interest rates, but of mortgage rates in particular. Uh, you mentioned my line that the Fed became the biggest savings and loan in the world. It did. Uh, the Fed owned, uh, owned and owns about $2.7 trillion in mortgages. <coughs> Excuse me, they own it in the form of, of uh, mortgage securities, but they actually own the mortgage, uh, which means that roughly a quarter of all of the mortgages in the country are are on the uh, books of the central bank, which is outrageous. They should have zero. Instead, they've got a quarter of all there are. And, uh, and that uh, artificially suppressed mortgage rates, and that artificially made house prices boom, uh, and go very high for, for a very long period. Um, in the, uh, in our recent, uh, uh, book, we say that was written in, in, in text that was written about a year ago. Well, uh, uh, when or if mortgage rates go back to normal and normal is at least five or six percent or maybe more, uh, house prices will go down. Well, since then, mortgage rates have gone back to a more normal level now over 6% and house prices are going down. The question now is how far? Because when you get a booming asset price uh, induced uh, by the uh, interest rate manipulation and by the central bank making itself into a giant savings and loan, um, you're setting yourself up for the other side of that, which is the deflation of the bubble mm -hmm. and uh, the fall in house prices and what we're Anybody who thinks about this now is, of course, asking how far uh, can asset prices fall? It's not unusual in in uh, 
market and financial markets for asset prices to overshoot on the downside after having overshot on the upside. Uh, the the uh, bad news on that is if you're somebody who bought at the top, you're going to be maybe you know very soon underwater. You will owe more on your mortgage than the house will will be worth. On the other hand, if you're a young couple, maybe just just married or looking to start having children and you want to buy a house, the houses are going to be more affordable. Um, and they they got so wildly uh, out of line after a very long period of, uh, of artificial suppression of interest rates. My uh, friend of mine at, at Pinto, who runs the AEI Housing Center, and I have a little joke, which is the, the classic... Uh, line about the central bank is the central bank is supposed to take away the punch bowl just as the party is warming up. Well, in, in this case, instead of taking away the punch bowl, they were pouring vodka into the punch uh, long after the party was tipsy. And, and now we're, now we're going to pay uh, for that from the other side of the cycle and things going down. Well, I guess first and foremost, uh, the housing market, as you point out, in the United States, the U.S. mortgage market is huge. So if we're already on our second housing bubble of just the 21st century, it, I thought the role, job of the Fed was to smooth out these booms and busts, not just in equity markets, but in housing markets, too. Ah, uh, yes. Well, you know, that is a remarkable thing that you, that you point out. It's only 23 years into this century and two housing bubbles already. Both were international housing bubbles, by the way. They involved many countries, not just the United States, because all the central banks led by the Fed did the same thing in terms of, in terms of artificially pushing up or artificially causing the financial circumstances that make house prices go up. So it's happened twice. Now, of course, that isn't what they're supposed to do. But the problem with being a central bank as a good uh, 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 Austrian economist would always say, Mises and Hayek and all, uh, all uh, those of us who are influenced by their thought, the problem is the central bank can't know what it's doing, in fact, and it may be intending to, uh, to uh, smooth things out where, where, when in fact what their actions result in is uh, wild uh, gyrations, in this case, in house prices. Uh, that has a lot of uh, a lot of cost. Well, you talk about the government mortgage triangle. You yes. know, our listeners, to be fair, are a little bit jaded when it comes to the Fed. But nonetheless, I'm not sure that even our listeners understand the extent to which the U.S. federal government or the U.S. central bank are running this show we call the housing market. So we have the triangle. We have the government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie and Freddie in one corner. We have the Treasury Department in another corner, and we have the U.S. Fed Bank in another. You, you point out something like 25% of American mortgages are flat out owned by the Fed as a result of all the paper it bought from commercial banks during QE. Yes. Um, but it's, it's, it's larger than that, though. When you start to look at the GSEs, it's way larger than just the Fed owning mortgages. Yes, it is. Uh, first of all, when we put the uh, what I, we call the government mortgage complex, that's Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, both of which are controlled by the government and majority owned 
by the U.S. Treasury. So they're really government operations. And Ginnie Mae, which is 100% owned by the federal uh, treasury and is therefore a government operation, put those three together and you've got close to 70% of all of the mortgage credit in the country in the hands of these government enterprises. Well, what kind of a market is that? Uh, you know, you might make a case uh, that if you wanted uh, to have various government programs, maybe they would represent 10 or 15% of a market. Maybe that was historically where about the uh, the, uh, the FHA, uh, that's the Federal Housing Administration's uh, loans were. I call them the government subprime lender, which is what they are. And maybe you can make a case for that. But 70% in the hands of the government, that's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and yet that's what we have. Uh, and of course, uh, from, the, from the viewpoint of some people, uh, like those who like high house prices because they sell houses or they broker houses, uh, they, they like all that government intervention. They lobby heavily for all the government intervention uh, for, for very good reasons having to do with their own, their own business. Uh, but we, uh, so we're into a situation where the, the intervention is wildly overdone and absolutely needs to be shrunk back. We may not be able to get to a Miesian zero, but at least we, it needs to be a lot less uh, than it is. Now, on the other hand, you got the Treasury. Well, the Treasury guarantees Fannie and Freddie. So really, uh, and Ginny. So all of this risk, I, I say this, this is all the, the, the bulk of all of the mortgage credit risk in the country is on the shores of the Potomac River in Washington, D.C., and it's all guaranteed by the U.S. Treasury, that is to say, by the taxpayers uh, of, of the country. And at the same time, you have the Federal Reserve having made itself into the biggest buyer. It's not buying right now, but it has been uh, for some years now the biggest buyer of mortgages. So here is this triangle that you mentioned, the, the Treasury which owns and guarantees the mortgage operations, the Fannie Freddie Ginny mortgage complex, which is owned and guaranteed by the government, the Fed, which is the big buyer, and the Fed, which in fact finances the treasury as its first duty. That's another story, but people should remember the first duty of a central bank is to finance the government of which it's a part. That's what they're about. So the Treasury is able to, to guarantee all these things only because the Federal Reserve will print money to buy its debt as necessary, as, as they did uh, up to about $5.5 trillion uh, over the last couple of years. So we have to think about this, this, all these parts of the government, which are huge, all intervening, all taking the housing market, the housing finance market, away from being a market and making it like a, uh, a government uh, program with all of the problems that entails. So when we think about housing, hasn't this been a multi-decade subsidy in effect to, oh, yes. to home builders, oh, sure. to real, realtors, to mortgage issuers? I mean, th this, is, yes. th this is all designed presumably to boost 
home ownership in the U.S., but as you point out in your book, it seems stuck at 65%, regardless of what they That's do. That's right. We've had uh, at a roughly 65% for 50 years or so as the American home ownership rate. That is to say, the, the percent of households who own their own house. Uh, and during that time, we've had a huge flow uh, of government subsidies into this market. Uh, but the home ownership rate doesn't go up. It went up temporarily in the bubble of 1999 to 2006. That bubble deflated. It went back down to where it was before. So what does all the subsidy achieve? All the subsidy achieves higher house prices. So uh, as we see uh, any time, uh, there is an artificial flow of, of credit pushing uh, on a market, the the natural result is the prices in that market go up. So the subsidies uh, meant to increase home ownership, in fact, uh, end up pushing up the house, the house prices higher and higher, making it harder and harder uh, for people to get into home ownership, which is what we would like in the society. I think as you suggest, Jeffrey, it's good to have a society of property owners, uh, but as you push the the prices higher and higher, uh, uh, that gets harder and harder for people to get onto the ladder, as we used to say. Of home well, you ownership. know who likes this is old people who own their homes outright. That's if who you likes own, this. Yes, you're already there where you're an owner, of course. Uh, if you're able to sell, if you're in the, in the middle of life, and every time you sell, you have to buy. Well, then you're on both sides of the trade. You're not actually right. ahead. But at right. some point, if you can sell and uh, do a serious downsizing or go to someplace less expensive. But, but what we know is, in, in, in fact, the, the massive uh, government intervention, guaranteeing of credit, uh, subsidizing uh, interest rates, taking the risk and the assets into the government, trying into the government mortgage triangle is is distorting what would be a market uh, outcome. Uh, and that'll help some people and will seriously hurt others. So is this just a gigantic wealth transfer from young to old, like Social Security? Uh, it's in part that. Uh, some people have argued it's a gigantic wealth, wealth transfer from the rest of the country to California where the house prices have historically been outrageous. Uh, another element of this is the, the size of the mortgages, uh, which the government through its uh, housing complex guarantee get bigger and bigger. So with the last change, the government is in the business and even the Federal Housing Administration, a subprime lender, is in the business of guaranteeing million dollar, uh, guaranteeing the loans to buy million dollar houses. I think we say in the book something like an ordinary citizen would look at that and say, that's ridiculous. Subsidizing a million dollar house. And it is ridiculous, mm -hmm. uh, but it's true. Well, we know what a rational housing market looks like because we have our grandparents to look at, right? Which is borrowing no more than three, possibly four times household income, putting 20% down and not, you know, maybe even having a 15 year mortgage instead of 30 Yes. So we are so far from that with the median home price, let's say $400,000 in the U.S. I mean, that sounds like there's a long way down. And, and I wonder 
if this doesn't mean that a lot of 20 and 30-somethings, currently 20 and 30-somethings, are going to simply rent for much of their lives. It could be, and it certainly depends on what the house prices do. Now, of course, there are a lot of factors uh, in this. Uh, uh, one is what, you know, how big a house are you trying to yeah. buy? If you go back to our grandparents' day, they were thrilled with houses which were modest houses, uh, not, not right. McMansions, not with two bathrooms per person uh, in the house. Uh, that's one. Uh, a second thing, which you and I discussed a little bit, uh, is as uh, that there is a very high correlation between marriage and home ownership. Uh, married couples have about twice the home ownership rate of, of unmarried households, and marriage has unfortunately declined in our society, especially with certain demographic groups. It's extremely low, uh, and that's a, a problem for home uh, ownership. The other thing is the question of uh, when I talk to young people about mortgages, I say, now here, here is a radical idea. The idea with a loan is you're supposed to pay it off. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to our grandparents' day, they thought the point of the mortgage was you would pay it off and then you'd own the house free and clear. And you might even have a party where you burned the, uh, burned the mortgage or something. Uh, whereas we have now a, a system where, you're, uh, where if you do cash out refinancing, so if the, the price of the house is being pushed up, you borrow more and more against the house. Every time you borrow, you push the debt out for 30 more years uh, into the future. Uh, and in my own opinion, it would be to, to be handy to re-inculcate uh, the ethic that it's a very good thing to pay off your mortgage, not to make it bigger and, and, and forever moving out in front of you uh, as you get older. And that's one reason why a 15-year mortgage has serious advantages in that you're actually paying it off more quickly. But with each payment, there's more reduction of, of principal. A 30-year mortgage is a very small, as you know, reduction mm -hmm. of principal in the, in the early years. But this is, is all about, is it, uh, is it good to have debt, which is ever increasing and pushing out in front of you? Of course, that feels good if the house price is always going up. Well, when it's going to go down, it feels less good. Well, obviously, there, there are cultural, social elements to all this, and, and yeah. I'm, I'm quite happy to talk about those. But in a sense, there's also the question, you know, debt is rational in a low interest rate environment. I mean, you know, you've got 70-year-olds moving to Florida during COVID, and they're taking out a 30-year mortgage. Now, the, the mortgage lender knows they're not going to pay that for 30 years. They're... Yeah. Uh, but they make the, you know, they intend to sell that mortgage, which they originate. Right. So Correct. given this game of musical chairs, given all this Fed subsidies, uh, given the guarantees of Fannie and Freddie, the repurchase, uh, you know, ar arrangements, um, in, in a lot of ways, you can look at really almost the last 40 years, but certainly the last 20 and say, Alex, well, gee whiz, savings, saving money is for chumps and borrowing money is is wise. I mean, that's that's a, a rational approach in many ways to the incentives, to the signals provided to us by this crazy housing market. That's correct. Uh, until you get the deflation, as we're getting now, and then everything goes into reverse. Um, 
it's still, you know, although interest rates on savings, on, on short-term investments, let's say, uh, have, have risen, say, 4%, they're still negative in real terms. You're still losing to inflation, even earning 4% if inflation is 6 or 7 or worse. Uh, but it's not as bad as it was. And uh, uh, we're now in, in the other side uh, of the cycle. So the second housing bubble has now ended. We're into its deflation. And when house prices, when any asset price starts to fall, you never know how far the fall will be. Um, remember that a price has no objective existence. Price is a result of human action and, and human expectations. Uh, and 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 uh, belief or or lack of belief in the future, and the prices uh, can can move more than more than you think. Uh, so we're going to see. It used to be said, I'm talking in the early 21st century, uh, that house prices would never fall on a national basis. But, well, well, of course, they could fall in a particular region because we, we had experience of that. Uh, there was an oil, uh, Texas and, and Louisiana, Oklahoma oil, uh, oil crash, followed by a housing and real estate crash in the 1980s. There was a New England real estate crash in the 1990s and then Cal Southern California. So people said, well, sure, on a regional basis, but in this whole big country, because it's so diversified, uh, economically, um, we, we can't get a, the whole prices in the whole country going down. So uh, that was thought impossible. But guess what? It happened. And in the uh, in the aftermath of the first housing bubble of this century, uh, uh, which ran about seven years from 1999 to 2006, house prices fell on average in the whole country 27 percent, which is huge. Uh, and now it looks like, thanks to the fact that house prices were pumped up so much by the central bank in particular, but by the whole government mortgage intervention in general, where it looks like we are now getting for the second starting last summer and, uh, uh, in running for a while, we don't know how long some Reputable forecasts are that house prices on a national basis will fall 10 or 15 percent uh, next year, but maybe in a bad case, it's another 20 percent. You know, so that if you had, if you borrowed on a, if you borrowed 90 percent of the price of the house at the top, and the prices yes. go down 20 percent, you are way underwater. You owe a lot more on the house than the house is then worth. So you, you, you pay for the manipulation in, in this way. And when we're seeing now for the second time in a short period of time, historically speaking, that house prices, if you pump them up on a national basis, they can go down on a national basis. Well, as far as the lending goes, you were president of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago for many years. So if you compare that period as a lender, you were a depository institution as well. Uh, what, how does that compare to someone like a rocket mortgage today? I mean, how radically different is the process? 
There have uh, there've always been two channels in American mortgage finance, a mortgage banker originate and sell to an investor channel. That goes way that goes back to the 1920s and before and a depository institution channel. And there's a fundamental difference between the two, which is who who keeps the loan and who keeps the risk. Well, typically, in the old-fashioned depository days, in the, in the savings and loan era, when the savings and loans were the dominant mortgage lenders, they made the loan and they kept the loan and they had all and they kept all the credit risk uh, of the loan. So it was your customer, your borrower, and uh, and you had to worry about how it was going to turn out. And if you got it wrong, you paid. You took the loss. With the mortgage bankers, and especially with the vast growth of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which really happened in the 1980s. 1980s is the great takeoff period right. for the government mortgage complex and, and ever since. Then you got what we call uh, the uh, originated cell, like with Quicken or Rocket uh, Mortgage, but, it, but with, with the mortgage banking channel in general, uh, you make the loan and you sell the loan to somebody else, and somebody else gets the risk. Um, and that somebody else turns out to be the taxpayer under the current government-dominated system. The taxpayer gets the risk instead of you who are making loan. Well, it's a pretty easy uh, uh, um, conclusion to draw that if you have, as we say, skin in the game, that if you are going to live with the credit that you're mm-hmm. creating as a lender, you're going to be more careful with it and a more successful lender than those who don't live with the credit, who make the loan and sell it, and, they're, and they have to react to rules somebody gives them as opposed to their own, as opposed to their own future of losses if they get it wrong. Well, when I was at the Home Loan Bank in Chicago in the 1990s, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about how the system was being taken over by a system of originate and sell, basically sell the risk to the taxpayer. And we thought, well, it's fundamentally better, I said to myself, and we said to ourselves, if 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 whoever makes the loan keeps the risk of the loan, doesn't give it to somebody else. In sure. terms of the credit risk, will will this be a successful credit? So we looked uh, at the, the uh, empirical data, and guess what? Sure enough, places that made and kept the risk of their own loans had better credit experience than those who originated and sold. Surprise, surprise, but it was clear. Uh, so... We, uh, in those days, had a huge lot of fun uh, creating a system where we said, All right, well, look, at if you're a bank, you're in the credit business, you shouldn't be selling the credit of your own loan to the government. That is, to the taxpayer, you should be keeping the credit. And we created a business to do that. We called it Mortgage Partnership Finance. And, uh, and I think that's a fundamentally superior structure, that is to say, who, who makes the loan keeps the credit risk of the loan is where is how we should be uh, trying to structure the system, not make the loan and give the risk to somebody else, especially 
when the somebody else is guaranteed by the Treasury and the Fed, and so it's really the taxpayer. So, so without Fannie and Freddie, this resale market would be very different. Oh, yes, it'd be utterly different. Well, utterly okay, different. let's say maybe, maybe not to the level of 08, but let's say we have a, a real housing crash halfway to the level of 08. So Fannie, Freddie, the U.S. Fed along with a lot of commercial banks, hold a lot of underperforming or likely underperforming mortgage paper. In this government mortgage complex, nobody is marking this to market, right? Well, they, um, that's, not, that's not quite true. They have to, uh, uh, they have to in, do mark-to-market on their balance sheets, and you find it in the footnotes under the fair value footnote. Even the Federal Reserve, and this is a really fascinating case, which owns, as we said, $2.7 trillion, which is a big number. Uh, in their footnotes, they mark them to market. But you have to be sort of a financial professional to go through enough of the fine print to find the footnotes. And if you do that, as of September 30th, you find out that on a mark-to-market basis, the Federal Reserve is down $1.1 trillion. That is, they have a loss, a mark-to-market loss, on their bond plus mortgages portfolio of $1.1 trillion. But you won't find that on their balance sheet, because exactly as you say, Jim, they don't mark-to-market for their balance sheet. And, so what percentage uh, of that loss, you think, is in the housing sector versus their a own? Bunch of it is in, a bunch of it is in the mortgages, yes. If we, uh, if I got out the footnote, we could find exactly how much. But yeah, a large, a large uh, mark-to-market loss in the mortgages because mortgages react more strongly uh, than do government bonds to rises in interest rates. For the same rise in interest rates, you'll have a bigger loss uh, on mortgages. We call it in the trade negative convexity, uh, but the point is they have a big loss now. Uh, but it's not, you, you won't find it in, in the balance sheet. And should they want, the Federal Reserve will not sell, I will firmly predict, any of their mortgages because they don't want to recognize, they don't want to have to recognize the losses. But even if they did, they have changed their accounting so that the realized loss, I mean, you, let's say you bought it for 103, uh, you know, par, 3% over par, which would not have been unusual in the bubble. And you sold it for 90. So that's a loss of 13. And they, the Federal Reserve has fixed its accounting. So that loss of 13 will not show up in their retained earnings or their capital account. They will book it in a completely fictitious asset uh, in order just to not have to fess up to the fact that they've they've lost a bunch of their capital. That's the advantage of controlling your own accounting standards, which and, and, the central right, bank but does. What we worry about, of course, is just how much debt is out there. And so there's there's a lot of talk about the shadow banking system, for example. Yeah. Not really that shadowy. Rocket Mortgage, for example, is, no, is responsible for something like a trillion dollars of U.S. It's the biggest, mortgage the lending. biggest originator of was at least the biggest originator of U.S. mortgage. So, but they well, don't keep that. Remember, they're not keeping the right. They don't keep it. So, so what do they? The, what the do they do? What do they do? I mean, how, how quickly do they sell it? Oh, oh, very fast. You know, within 
they, they build up a pool of mortgages as they create them and they create them fast or were at least creating them fast. The, uh, the origination rate has dropped dramatically uh, in the second half of this year. Okay. But then they, then they get sold. Uh, they get guaranteed by, in their case, Fannie or Freddie, or if they're, uh, or if they're federal housing administration loans by Ginnie Mae. And then those are turned into securities bought by investors, but all of the credit risk is guaranteed by the government. So now uh, the mortgage bank is out of the credit risk uh, and, and doesn't own the loan, so it doesn't have to fund the loan. So it doesn't have to worry about the mark to market. That's somebody else's problem. Hmm? Okay. Uh, except they're still servicing the loan. So servicing means they're collecting the monthly payments of interest and principal and property taxes. Uh, and they do have a serious risk, and we discussed this in the book, in fact, that if the mortgages stop paying, a servicer whose loans are guaranteed by Fannie or Freddie or Ginnie has to keep on sending to the bondholders the pay, what we call the scheduled payments, the promised mm -hmm. payments, even though they haven't been paid. And this theoretically can, can put them into a severe financial uh, condition uh, if, if the downturn in housing is, uh, uh, is severe. So all this mortgage paper guaranteed in effect by the GSEs, backstopped by the Treasury, has that ever been meaningfully tested? And, and wouldn't the Fed ultimately be bail out the Treasury? Yes. So it, but it, how it, does it do that? How does well, the Fed do that? Uh, it creates electronic money and, and buys Treasury That's debt. Right. Well, some, you know, most of it's electronic. But, you know, there are $2 trillion of actual paper dollars. So, so uh, about a quarter... Well, the balance sheet of the Fed is about eight and a half trillion now. So roughly a quarter is an actual paper money. So they still do print, Jeff. But, but a lot of say. A, a they lot print of, really right? and they print metaphorically through the electronic money. But, but they a, make lot it of, up. a lot of people, though, would just say, look, uh, you Austrians have been fretting about this forever. The balance sheet went from <laughs> less than a trillion to nine and the, and the earth kept yeah. spinning. Why can't it go from eight to 16 to 20? It can and we'll pay for it with high inflation, just as we are paying now. We'll pay for it with inflation, not only in goods and services prices, but with inflation in asset prices, which will then deflate. Uh, and uh, many people will experience serious losses when that happens. So uh, I'd like to say the most fundamental principle of all principles in economics uh, and, and one to which all good students of Mises and Hayek uh, certainly understand is nothing is free. So the, the printing of the money by the Fed isn't free. It has a serious cost. And the cost is inflation, both of consumer prices and of asset prices. Uh, so that, and when that happens, you pay and you, uh, and you, you uh, then trying to correct for that, uh, introduce the, uh, uh, the not desired, but in fact, uh, cyclical 
pain, destruction of savings, and destruction of real wages. Let's just say hypothetically that there was some political will to get the government, federal government, less involved in the mortgage game, to slowly begin to unwind all of this participation. Um, is, is that technically feasible, regardless of whether it's politically feasible? Sure, it is feasible. What would that look uh, like? But it would, it would uh, it's technically feasible. It would look like returning to a more market system. Um, I have myself worked on various uh, ideas for how you could do that. One way often proposed, which makes perfect sense, is you just start systematically reducing the size uh, of the loans that can be guaranteed by the government. And this thus originated by, uh, by somebody and sold to somebody else at the risk of the taxpayer. Uh, I mentioned before, we're to the place where now in some areas, you got million dollar houses with their mortgages being guaranteed by the government. You just take, you go on a schedule and you start systematically reducing that amount lower and lower. Well, you'll get a lot of political kick, uh, a backlash against that because people who built those houses will say, well, well now I can't sell the houses easily. And the people who uh, uh, generate the, the, house, the, the mortgages on the million-dollar houses won't be able to have those mortgages, which they can just sell to Fannie and Freddie. Uh, and interest rates on mortgages may be higher. And house prices will be lower. Uh, but all of that makes it, makes it hard. But is it technically feasible to move in the other direction? Yes, it is. And a, a final point is... Uh, you make it clear with the with the central bank that their goal is not just to let their mortgages slowly run off away. Their goal is to get back to the historical mortgage position of the central bank, which is zero. Zero mortgages on the balance sheet of the central bank is where we ought to be. Uh, and could you get there? Yes. Uh, is there political... Uh, will to do it, that, that's a fight. It's a fight I've been in for, I don't know, 25 years, I guess. Well, if there's one takeaway from this conversation, it's that I, I don't know that we should even use the term housing market at this point, because this is, this is just a subsidized nightmare and a mess. So before we let you go, your book, just, just published in 2022, fresh off the presses, the COVID crisis and the new market bubble. Give us a real quick synopsis, because I know that the mortgage market is only one particular chapter of this larger book. Correct. Correct. Uh, this, uh, this book goes back uh, to 2020. We start off, I, at that point, I was in the Office of Financial Research of the U.S. Treasury, and my co-author, Howard Adler, was, uh, was the uh, head of the staff of the Financial Stability Oversight Council. So we were, we both were, uh, uh, had government jobs trying to uh, see where the next crisis would come from. And we start off the book saying how we and everybody else failed to see the crisis of 2020. But the book starts with the financial collapse of the spring of 2020, in which all asset markets, uh, 
stocks, bonds, real estate were all going straight down, just like so many rocks uh, dropping. Why were they doing that? Well, we had a virus come out of China, uh, which was not so much a surprise if you thought about mutation of viruses, but we had a government reaction to that, which was a complete surprise, which was closing down a good bit of the economy. The financial markets looked at that and said, this is going to be terrible. Right. And, and prices collapsed. Uh, even the market for U.S. Treasury debt, usually thought to be the safest market, didn't function very well. So spring of 2020 was a panic, a full-blown, surprising financial panic. Uh, so the book starts off with how we, how the whole world was surprised by that with the panic that then triggered a huge uh, flow of, of government, uh, uh, both, both the treasury spending and treasury spending financed by money printing by the Fed, uh, as you point out, yeah, some of it's metaphorical printing and some of it's real, but by, by central bank money creation, then uh, it, in order to stabilize the, the situation caused by the political reaction to the virus. Then following that came the next surprise of 2020, which wasn't expected, although it might be should have been, which was tremendous bull markets and bubbles and assets, which ran through uh, 2021. And then the emergence, uh, as you say, as the Austrians were always predicting, and it really happened then, of runaway inflation again. First asset price inflation, then consumer price inflation, uh, and then the belated uh, reactions, uh, uh, which we're now which we're now living with, as you and I have been discussing. So that's why the book goes. The book starts with the the uh, uh, sort of a, a philosophical meditation on the uncertainty of the financial future and the, the inability of central banks to either anticipate it or control it. Then the panic of 2020, the giant bailout of 2020, the subsequent bubble markets, and then the, and then the deflation of those markets. And I think it all makes a pretty interesting story, in fact. Thank you for asking me. Well, we didn't even have a chance today to get to all the fiscal side of this oh, yes. with both Trump and Biden. But but Alex Pollock, we thank you for your time. The book available on Amazon is called Surprised Again, The COVID Crisis and the New Market Bubble. And we will look forward to seeing more of you on Mises.org. Thank you very much. Great All to right. be here. All right. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great weekend. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.